Dear Church Podcast. Just duly noted for Brother Brunnack's sake, because he always, I was going to say whines, but maybe I should say complains about the fact he doesn't know when we're recording. Yeah, for the sake of our listeners, by the way, we are live now, Steve. We have to like let him know when I push the record button because there have been times we've gotten halfway into the podcast. He's like, oh, are we recording? And I'm like, yeah, right now. I mean, we're talking. Yeah, so we should like all text him right now and message him and email him and send a blimp over his head to, you know, <laughs> look at that Pull little grin on his face. That's terrible. That's terrible. That I do feel, I, and you know, we don't, we definitely have to be careful about that because, you know, Steve says a lot of crazy stuff off, off of the air. No, <laughs> it's just that there's a history of you starting recording and none of us knowing. And I, I had a bad old man moment the one time because we were well in, it's the conspiracy theory episode. Uh-huh. I remember that. that um, oh my that God. That episode was crazy. crazy. There was, I, was, I was saying things I would have never said if I'd known they were... <laughs> So anyway, yeah, I remember this. Every idle word. <laughs> yeah, there you go. On a, on a less serious note, I always thought these quarter quarter zip sweaters were kind of new and trendy. And Tom's got one on today, so I'm thinking maybe not so new and trendy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've had this about twenty years. My wife keeps Everybody. trying to throw it away, and I keep it's pulling back it back out of style. The trash. That's right. It's old. It's Martin and I are taking notes. Martin and I are taking notes right now of what not to wear. Yeah. Hey, I Peyton Manning was talking about it on his uh, Monday Night Football gig. And that's when I even I never knew you would call this a quarter zip. So who's that is Peyton Manning. Mm -hmm. He's the runner up to the Heisman Trophy to to, um, Charles Woodson. What's the Heisman Trophy? It's the Charles Woodson football, as in F O O T ball, Martin. I mean, is Heisman you need to like a brand things. of beer or something like Budweiser or what? What's that? <laughs> That's Probably. Heineken. Oh, come on! How come you, you knew know that this? so quickly? <laughs> hey, speaking uh, because, of sports, I appreciated in uh, Tom's book Next, which is available at uh, all good bookstores. Um, he made a reference to cricket. Spoke about there being a sticky wicket, which was I was very impressed with. Wow. Yeah, that's saying something. Which, I, knew it was, I don't think I knew it was cricket, but you're welcome. Which is, a, which is, by the way, a fantastic segue into our topic today, which we, for many of our podcasts, don't have to do this, but I feel like we actually need a disclaimer today because the topic of our podcast is pastoral transitions. And Tom has written a book called Next. You can purchase that book where, Tom? Uh, it is on Amazon. It is on iTunes. It is on Barnes & Noble. Um, okay. Or you can write me and I'll send you a signed copy. Ooh. I've read my copy, so I'll send you a copy at half price. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Hey, before we get too far from that, I missed an opportunity to tell you the story about when Martin fell into the vat of maple syrup. It was a sticky Wiccans. And am I supposed to edit this out? Was it? <laughs> you knew we were no, recording, you, right? You, you need you need to edit in a laugh track here at this point. I mean, That's he hilarious. knew we were recording. Like, so these he does this when he knows we're recording. You can only imagine I don't even what he know, does when he does. I don't know. even know what a sticky wicket is, but sticky wicket and sticky wickens. I mean, you can't miss an opportunity like that. That's oh, just my too word. Fun. Well, <laughs> I'm, all the millennials just tuned out of our podcast. Thanks for that dad again. joke. Again, yeah. again. <laughs> he said again. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Hey, easy. I like, that, I like that observation on Twitter that that Martin's cartoon likeness looks more Calvinistic than his real likeness. Oh, but yeah. Go to Martin's Twitter handle. Go to Martin's Twitter handle and look at his avatar. And it, it looks like a straight up Calvinist five pointer. Yeah, I'm much. expecting him to be, you know, in a brew pub somewhere discussing <laughs> irresistible grace. Well, he oh, was the one who brought brother. up alcohol, so. But that's not what our podcast is about today. Uh, today, yes. our podcast is about pastoral transitions. And with that, the disclaimer that we were working toward um, before we were rudely interrupted by the dad jokes is the fact that none of us are looking to go anywhere. We are not reading Tom's book because we're on our way out of our churches. We're not looking to take other churches. We're not looking for any of that. Um I think all of us are actually really good where we are in the sense of of the place that we find ourselves in our own hearts. So that disclaimer we discussed before we went live and uh, we all felt it might be a, a good positive thing to to bring that up and to mention that that's not why 
we are talking about this very subject today. However, uh, the subject of pastoral transitions is a is an important one, and also it's very it's very little discussed in the sense that someone who finds themselves in a place where God is either leading them into another ministry or out of the ministry that they're in, well, it's really hard to find written material out there on this subject. That's my opinion. Which is why I wrote it. There's an old statement that you write the book you don't see on the shelf. It's not the only reason to write a book, but it's an important reason to write a book. And um, there are books that are written about pastoral transition to help a church and help a pastor, but none of them from an independent Baptist perspective. Um uh, for a variety of reasons. And again, that makes the knowledge base so limited because then when you're trying to figure out what to do as an independent Baptist pastor, you reach for an evangelical book, which is about a denominational approach, which doesn't really fit you. Um, and then you, you're limited to talking about it to a handful of close friends because the whole mindset is this is almost a borderline shameful thing that we don't discuss. And so right. then your knowledge base is limited and your wisdom is limited. Right. And Tom, I don't know if you would, would just mind just kind of starting the conversation off with this or not, but why why did you write the book? Tell us your experience, tell us your testimony, and tell us why why even why even put all this time and effort into something like a manual for pastoral transitions. I wrote the book because God pressed me for several years in the process of deciding to leave a very successful, for lack of a better word, Chicago pastorate and look for what came next. I wasn't planning to write the book in the course of that situation. I didn't decide to write the book until after um, after I'd you know taken this church and was settled here in Iowa. It didn't even occur to me to, to write a book about it until then. But I, I, I felt that what I had gone through, it, it affected me so much. And I was just frustrated, again, that there was just not information about it that I could go find anywhere. And I had nothing to lose in the sense of, of, you know, I'm very happy where I'm at here in Iowa. And again, I was happy in Chicago and I don't want to get off into those weeds, but um, I'm very happy where I'm at. I'm not looking to go anywhere, but I don't have anything to lose. I've learned this. I just want to edify men. I just want to help people and help mm. God's churches. I really do. And there's a huge void here in this particular area. And I, I think you have filled it nicely. And so thank you for that. And just just another plug. Uh, people need to go check the book out because there's no way we could cover all of the top, the conversation or all of the, the content of the book in this one conversation. But um, Steve, you had and, something you were going to Yeah. And I will add, having been Tom's friend for several years and kind of throughout this process that he really lived this book. Um, and, you know, we talked pretty closely through his transition and prayer and everything. And, and it's really, a testimony. As I was reading the book, I was thinking, man, this is like talking to Tom on the phone a year ago or two years, ago, you know, four years ago or whatever, because um, he really thought through these things and prayerfully considered them. And I think there's a lot of help in it. So each of us have held multiple ministry positions. Um, I thought it might be helpful for us to kind of review those for our, for the sake of our listeners. Um, in my case, I was a youth pastor at our church, which is my home church, the one that I'm at now. Uh, it's where I grew up, and it's it's what I've known my whole life outside of Bible college. That would be the only di- diversion from from my home church, uh, and and I feel blessed in that regard. I won't say that I I don't know what's going on in other churches because we traveled actually uh, quite a bit through Faith Music Missions um, as uh, when I was a kid. So we you know we got around, but my membership has been exclusive to what was then Bakey Road Baptist Church and is now Faithway Baptist Church. So I came home from Bible College in 2011. January was the youth pastor for three years in 2014, became the, as I like to say, senior pastor at the ripe old age of 25 and uh, went from there. Um, we're eight years in the Lord's blessing. We're excited about it. And so that's that's kind of my background. Tom, how many churches have you pastored and ministry positions have you held? I uh, graduated from Bible College in 95, started a church in 97 in rural Pennsylvania, um, was there for seven years. I felt to have a stable church, I needed to have a building that we owned and the ability to pay a pastor full time. We got that far. And I frankly, as a young man, got frustrated with the lack of potential in that church and the lack of opportunity in the sense of it's a tiny town, 1,100 people. And I was a young man. And I began to pray God would send me to a town bigger uh, than that town east of the Mississippi River. And he sent me to the middle of Chicago, um, which was certainly bigger than rural Pennsylvania. And uh, Spent 16 years in Chicago there, raised my family there for the most part. Um, Toward the end of that time, for a variety of reasons, I write about this in the book to some extent, I made the decision I needed to go. 
and began to look for what came next. And the Lord brought me here to Iowa. I took an established church. So I've taken two established churches, um, followed in both cases, uh, men who had were longtime pastors who were up in years and um, started a church. So that's my progression. Steve, how about you? Well, I graduated Bible college in 1996, and I was married and went into being a part-time youth pastor at um, a church in Michigan for about two years. And then God really moved in my heart that I needed to be pastoring and just kind of sought the Lord's will and used my Bible college as a, um, a point of contact. And through my Bible college, um, I got in contact with Calvary Baptist Church in Charles City and spent five awesome years there. Um, it was a church that is about to close its doors. Six mm-hmm. people voted to call me. The youngest one was 62. Um, the oldest was close to 90. And it was it was awesome. And God blessed that ministry. And um, I'm thankful for the experience that I had there. And then um, after my time was finished there, I actually resigned the church without a place to go which is different than what some people go through, but I knew God was in it. And had I not done that, I don't think I would be where I'm at now. So there was about an eight month um, time in between there. And during that time um, I worked for Ford. I was a car salesman. And then I went from that. You were a car where they used cars. Oh yeah. New and used. Yes. (laughs) We had a saying in the business called buyers are liars. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. I, I'm going to go on. I'm sorry too. to interrupt you. <laughs> That's okay. So then God called me here um, in February of 2004. And so I've been here over 18 years now, and it's been awesome. And, um, you know, God's taught me a lot of lessons. We've relocated since being here and seen God add our marriage ministry to our church. And just uh, that's been my experience in ministry. Awesome. Martin, yours is obviously going to be just, I, I don't want to say wildly different, but there's just such a huge difference in, in your experience than all of ours, considering your background and the fact that you're, you know, you're from England. Uh, tell us about ministry there and then, and then how many positions you held in ministry, what you did there and how God brought you here. So the church I grew up in, it was, uh, it was a small church, uh, Brimson Baptist Church. And the church building and to some degree, the congregation had been there since the 1830s. But the congregation I was a part of initially was one that my my pastor had started in a separate location and they merged. So my experience is always in a small church. I always determined I didn't want to be in church planting or replanting. Hmm. And that's exactly what the Lord called me into initially. Hmm. Um, and so the the first church I was the, the pastor of was in uh, Newton Abbey in Northern Ireland, and we were there for three years. Um, and it was a small church; it had only been planted a few years before by a missionary, Tom Fittis. And from there, we moved to. We agreed to only be there three years, so it was a time limited thing. And so, when the three years were up, we, you know, we handed it over to a local man, and then uh, moved to Sunderland, which was in Northern England, which was. A much different situation. It was a large historic church. Uh, the, the 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 pastor there used to swap pulpits with Charles Spurgeon, and you know former pastors were men like Sidlow Baxter, and I mean just incredible history. But they had taken me there, invited me there to lead two of their mission halls, which were basically like church plants to independents. Um, and again, it was a time limited deal, so we were there for two years, and I was basically in an associate pastor position. Uh, From there, we went back down to my home church. I'd been a pastor for five years and I came to the conclusion that I had no idea what I was doing. And um, (laughs) I wanted to go and work under my my pastor that I grew up with again. And I just felt like I needed that mentoring. Unknown to me, the Lord was uh, withdrawing my, my pastor from ministry for health reasons. So we got down there and that that whole process was interesting as and we'll maybe get into it later. I don't want this to take too long, but um, when my pastor resigned, 
um, over Skype because he was here in the States because of health reasons. Um, mm. Several in the church came to me and they said, so you're the pastor now, right? And I said, nope, uh, th there's a process. So we were there <laughs> seven years and then long story short, now I'm in Bedford, Pennsylvania. Wow. <laughs> Skipping a few well, steps. I know that was a long, a long route, uh, a long road. Well, no, we set you up for it, man. We said yours was, you know, wildly different. We want to hear all about you, man. As a matter of fact, the biggest feedback, the most I, frequent feedback that I receive is people want to hear more of Martin. So don't ever apologize for, for going long. Well, the funny thing friend. in Brimson, as I was saying, like they came to me and they were like, so you're the pastor now, right? And I had to lead them to form a pulpit committee that then turned around and asked me to candidate, even though I was the one who'd been preaching every week for the previous six months. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's Wild. I've heard of that before. That's in fact I've talked to guys, they've done the same thing. Yeah. Well, in in the process of all this, you know, there's there's one thing that I've never done that you guys have had to do, and this may be a good place to start talking. And um, that is leaving a church, leaving a ministry. Um, Steve, you mentioned that you had left a ministry to go to nothing, essentially, in the sense that you didn't know where you were going. It wasn't that you were going to nothing. Um, and all of you had, you know, at some point or another uh, resigned a ministry to move on to a new one. And since I'm not, uh, I'm not the experienced one in, in that realm. Um, I thought it would be a good idea to just kind of talk amongst the three of you about what that looks like. Like, how do you, how do you know when it's time to go? How do you know when, when your time is up? How do you know when, um, your family's hurting, uh, to the degree that, that you need to make that kind of decision? What are the things that factor into that? I think there has to be a, a default approach um, even though I criticize this a little bit in next, a default approach of staying, because otherwise you're just going to leave every time there's opposition, every time there's an opportunity and you're never going to put down roots. You're never going to produce much fruit. There's, there's lots and lots of good reasons to stay. Um, and I think, and I have a chapter about that in, in the book. And I think, I think, you know, I look at Brother Brudnack across the screen from me and he's been at United Baptist and they've had some difficult waters here and there, um, as every church will and every pastor will. And he's just determined to stay, um, not ornery against the will of God, but following the will of God. And I think, I think the whole decision to go or to stay, you have to make that decision very carefully and very slowly, um, because otherwise you're just going to end up being one of those pastors who bounces around in the ministry all the time. Right. Yeah. And. I almost wonder, it's something we didn't even discuss in our show prep, but how much our church experience growing up may, may play a part in some of the way we think. My my home church was very stable with pastors, and, you know, um, I only had two pastors in my life until I went to Bible college, and that transition happened when I was eight years old. So I had a pastor from the time my mom got saved, and I was 18 months old till eight years old, and then from eight years old till the time I went to college, the same preacher. And then he was there, I think a total of 25 years. And, and I think what Tom says, the default is to stay. I think that's wisdom, but you know, I love in Tom's book, he gives a really good balance between, you know, God's leadership, but also some very practical things. And I think it's a lot like the call of God to preach. So if you're called to preach and you're in a church, you already know the voice of God, that he called you to preach. And many times we define it that way. You know it when you know it. And I think that's kind of when you leave a church, you know it when you know it. And I don't think preachers should hang their head or feel like they're being unspiritual. If the things that brought you to the point of knowing it when you know it are a lot of practical things like family needs and, you know, things of that nature. I, I get a little frustrated in this discussion when people, and I've talked to people in situations like this, and I got counsel like this when I was a younger man, that you should not ever decide to leave a church for practical reasons. In other words, God has to like write a message in the sky, you know, like for Constantine. And that's the only way you can ever leave a church. And I disagree with that. I think just like, as you mentioned, Brother Brudnack, just like there's practical considerations when you accept a pastorate, there's practical considerations when you leave a pastorate. And I don't think that's unbiblical. Um, I have a statement in the book somewhere that we're called to serve him. Not We're called to love him, not just with all of our heart, but all of our mind. And when something makes sense, um, and I, I'm not saying that our faith will always make sense because 
you know, all four of us here and every man listening to us, every woman listening to us, there's times your Christianity, God calls you to do something that doesn't make sense. But that doesn't mean that if it makes sense, it's not biblical. And it, it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use our mind and try to reason things out. And if it is better for you, if it's better for the church that you currently pastor, for you to go somewhere else, then go. I think in our situation, the first two churches, the process was relatively easy. I mean, we loved Northern Ireland. If there was somewhere we could have stayed for human reasons, we would have stayed there. But we agreed three years, and my heart was always in England. And so the same thing in Sunderland. We were there for an agreed period of time, and then we knew it was time to go. Leaving Brimpton was where, for the first time, I think we really had to wrestle and pray and take counsel. And so much of what you had in the book, Tom, is what we we kind of stumbled through. I wish I'd had the book at the time. Um, and we kind of stumbled through it. There were some steps we missed. Um, but, you know, the practical reasons that came down to us was, you know, financial. Um, I was working a full-time job. I was mission-supported. But the cost of living in the south of England is just insane. And, um, you know, I was just killing myself trying to, exist. Um, my wife was under a crazy amount of pressure. And although we had family there, we loved it. You know, there were practical reasons for discerning that God was going to move us on. And so I, I think those absolutely have to factor into it. And let me just add this too. And this is something I was, when we were preparing for this, I knew probably had to be said at some point, And I think this is a good point to say it. Those listening that are not in the pastorate, maybe you're an assistant or you're just a member in the church and you haven't been called to preach. Um, it's not unspiritual when a pastor uses practical things to make some of those decisions in the sense that I think sometimes when you're not in the ministry, um, you have this um, romanticized idea of what mm -hmm. a pastor is mm -hmm. and that he'll get some vision from God and that if he's if he's making something on practical lines, he's just being carnally motivated. But I mean, pastors have been called to this. It is the career that God's put them in. And because of that, sometimes there's choices made along those lines. And that's not a carnal decision. It's, it's, you know, it's God led through practical wisdom and through maybe the needs of that, that man and that man's family. That's a good point. I enjoyed throughout the book how Tom, you often referenced the wisdom that your wife can contributed to the decision-making mm -hmm. process. And yeah, I'm sure we can all testify to times when we listened to our wives and benefited and other times we didn't listen to our wives the way we should have done. And um, we wish that we had. Yeah. There's there. I completely agree with that. Um, and my wife wants me to say that. Um, I, <laughs> There are lots of guys. I mean, let's not make let's not let's not make any mistake. There are lots of guys that resign churches and they blame it on the will of God, and it's because they're afraid to, to fight something. They're uh, carnal. They're um, wanting a bigger opportunity. There, I mean, there's lots of bad practical reasons to leave, in the sense of you know. And so, I, I don't want to gloss over that either. But every every pastoral transition, every church change. Every time a church, you know, chooses a pastor and every time a pastor chooses a church, every one of those is unique. And the only person that can know that it's the will of God is you as the pastor and then the church as the church. And I and you have to be careful about making blanket statements. And there's wisdom here and there's guidelines here. Like Brother Brednack, you know, he resigned his church, didn't have anywhere to go for eight months. Um, I disagree with that on principle, but I'm not going to look at him and say, you were out of the will of God to do that. Right. And that's just one small example of what I'm talking about. Um, I think, uh, sorry, I think, you know, there's that melding of the practical with the, the spiritual. And yeah. you, you want to know the inward peace that God gives for a decision and and see that balance with the outward lead-ins that you have around you. Yeah, I agree. And that's that's why I included prayer as part of every chapter in the book, because I think unless you're relying upon the Lord, you're not going to get anywhere. So in, you know, in that respect, it's important for, I think, for people to realize that there are some practical reasons that a pastor may have to go. And that those reasons, Martin, you mentioned that your home church pastor, God was moving him because of his health. Uh, that could be a practical reason. But there are also 
a lot of reasons that we should consider when staying. You know, you talked about that default stay mode, and I, I really like the way that, that you put that. Um, my grandfather pastored the same church for 42 years. Now, mm-hmm. in full disclosure, he pastored about three churches before that, and then he ended up here. And um, his testimony, and he listens to this podcast, by the way, his testimony was, I tried to leave every week. I tried to leave, you know, many, many times, and God wouldn't let me leave. Mm-hmm. And that's important to take into account as well, is that, you know, there are going to be some times where you're physically exhausted, you're mentally frustrated, and you're not seeing the fruit, you're not seeing the results, uh, or or any other number of, you know, uh, battles that pastors face. And God still wants you to stay. To, you know, my, my grandfather would say that he's clipping coupons now in the sense that mm-hmm. he comes to church here every Sunday and sees it growing, and, and he still has the vision for the church that he had when he was the pastor, you know, he, he's mm-hmm. telling everybody we're going to build a thousand seat auditorium. That scares me. But, uh, anyway, um, what are some reasons? What are some reasons that when you felt like leaving, God said, no, you, you should really stay. I think, I think understanding that ministry has seasons, mm. that there's seasons of fruitfulness and seasons that are dry. If you, if when you get to those seasons that are dry, you leave a, you're never going to see the seasons of fruitfulness and B that that church is never going to thrive and you're never going to thrive as, as a man of God. Um, right. There are some things that only come with time. Uh, shallow roots produce very little fruit. Uh, your family needs, you know, the stability. Um, just because someone offers you an opportunity doesn't mean you have an obligation to go. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of things. And I got good counsel on that from some very good friends of mine um, about, about looking at those sorts of things. Brother Brother, I know you've wrestled with some of those same thoughts. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that cause you to stay too is sometimes you have to stay because of just character decisions because you as leading a flock are at a point of transition. You're not in a nice green pasture. Maybe you've decided to sell a building and build a building or you've brought on a new staff member. Um, there, there's something big in the church's life and I think it's it's a it's a very bad decision and a lack of character something better comes along in one of those moments and you just take off on the flock. That's, um, that, that, that's a decision to stay where to me, it's a matter of character. I mean, I there's decisions. Yeah. There's decisions we've made where it's like, you know, I, I, not that I've ever really had the heart to leave here cause I don't, I love this place, but it's like, well, I'm, I'm not leaving during this process. That would be wrong. Yeah, it's it, it, there's something about I, I think every pastor, the word pastor is shepherd, right? And, and we want to see the flock thrive. And I think there's something that every man ought to take in his own heart as this is my responsibility. And if it's not thriving, then I don't want to walk away when it's not thriving. The flip side is when it is thriving, you don't want to walk away either. So if you have that mindset, then generally you're going to stay. Um, yeah. And generally speaking, broadly speaking, it is better for churches to have long-term pastors than short-term pastors. Mm. Right. And I'll tell you, my Iowa experience was we had a really, really ugly business meeting. It was awful. Um, and we got through that. It, it it just it hurt everybody. It hurt the church and the church had had a history of that. I was the 28th pastor in 70 years. They went through pastors like Liz Taylor goes through husbands. And it was just awful. Um, but here's the thing. I didn't take off during the heat of it. I got, I got us through that. I established where we're at. And then I almost felt like my hands were, you know, metaphorically bloodied it to the point that it it was just time. And, you know, and I'm, I'm thankful that church has called a pastor after I left and he's been there now probably 19 years because he came after I left about 19 years ago. I've been here 18 and, um, you know, that that element of running through pastors got knocked out. You know, God used me to do that, but then Amen. he moved me on. Amen. Yeah. 
And of course, there are also situations where it's not just a pastor deciding whether to stay or leave. There's assistant pastors who are trying to weigh whether they should enter the pastorate. Mm-hmm. Right. Brother Budnick, you had to decide that. In in some sense, Brother Martin, you had to decide that. Brother Russ, you had to decide that. Um, there's situations where you are you're you're just plowing your row and an unsolicited opportunity comes to you and you have to consider that. Is this God's will? Is it not you weren't looking, you weren't even thinking about going anywhere, but somebody called for some reason. Um, and I do write about those in the book, too. And I think those are, are situations that men sometimes struggle to think through and work through. Yeah, something that you said, um, I think, in your book was that opportunity doesn't equal obligation. In other words, it doesn't equal, equal obligation to go. But man, opportunity, that's, that's, a, that's a rare thing for some in the sense that when somebody says, hey, we want to consider you for something, you didn't expect that. Have any of you guys experienced that? Is that something that you've ever had to consider in your ministries? I've had some opportunities come to me, and I weighed them essentially on the ba- that I didn't solicit, that I wasn't looking for, and I weighed them basically on the on the basis of how would that affect my family. My family has to be mm. first in all of these, so I turned down some opportunities that for me would have been a good fit, or would have looked good on my resume, or given me a bigger opportunity, but for a variety of reasons, I didn't think would fit for my family. And that's a very short answer to a complicated question. <laughs> yeah, Martin, yeah, you had something you were going to say there. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, Martin. No, no, that's fine. No, I had that happen um, once really that it was extremely um, flattering. And, you know, Tom, in the book, you mentioned that when that happens, it does kind of build up your ego. And I was on deputation trying to raise support to continue ministry in England. I was in a large church in Georgia, big church, had its own school. They they broadcast their morning services, live TV in the area, um, bigger than anything I'd ever seen. And Sunday evening, I preached and I'm shaking hands with people on their way out. And the pastor kind of made his way over and he said, Brother Wickens, can we go and speak? And he took me into his office and I'm like, what on earth? You know, what did I do? You know, he, he was deadpan serious and I'm I'm terrified. And uh, he sat down and I sat down and he said, I'm getting ready to retire, go into evangelism with what years I've got left. He said, I think you may be the man God wants to continue the ministry here. Mm. And uh, my head like just tripled in size. I don't know how I got out the door <laughs> on the way out. But on that occasion, I just, I knew God wanted me in England. Now there were other times when I was having difficult days in ministry and, you know, that offer, I would have jumped at it. <laughs> yeah, but at calls the time, then. Nobody, nobody calls when you're struggling. They only call. Yeah, when, yeah. You know, you yeah. know for sure that well, God doesn't want you to do that. I had a oh, catastrophic man. business meeting once. I was just crushed by it. And it was a learning process. But um, after that business meeting, I went into my office, sat down, and there was an email from a missions organization here in the States. And they said, hey, if we pay for all your expenses and make all the arrangements, could you come and do some round robin conferences for three months? And I looked at my wife and I said, I'm out of here. I'm like, you and the kids, I'll see you in three months, but um, I'm out. (laughs) And I didn't go, but it was tempting. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's just a unique, you know, it's a unique time in a pastor's life. And for folks who are church members listening, you know, I had a, I had a church member last week and in Sunday school, I walked in, she goes, I'm mad at you. And I'm like, Whoa, hello. Welcome to Sunday. This is Easter Sunday. She goes, I am mad at you. I go, why? She goes, well, the other night I go, did you have a dream? She goes, yes. I'm like, yeah, good night. How could you be mad at me? She goes, well, in my dream, mm-hmm. you took a church just down the road or something like that. You were leaving here to go to, to another ministry and you were leaving us stranded. And I was so mad at you and I'm still mad at you. And I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, okay, but uh, mm-hmm. no, the, not had those opportunities. So good, good thought for us. It's just as a, again, going back to church members, it's an interesting moment in a pastor's life when he gets those opportunities and it's, he doesn't have an obligation to go, but we almost feel like we have an obligation to pray about it at the very least. And that's what I was going to say. I've had opportunities. People have approached me and I will, I never just say no. I say, sure. I've had people ask for resumes and I'll always give it to them and pray, even though, you know, that happened when we were in our building moving transition. And I just told them, I said, I'll give you that and I'll pray about it, but it wouldn't be ethically right for me to leave here now. And, you know, I like something I heard R.B. Willett say years ago. It's like someone asked him why he stayed at Bridgeport for so long. And he's like, no one ever asked me to leave. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think that's a pretty that's good true. default. I that's have a pretty good default. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I know, not I if you know R.B. Willett, you don't. If you know R.B. Willett, you don't have any trouble believing that. Come on, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't have been recruited by this guy and that guy. and Yeah, you would think so, but maybe... You know, I think sometimes pulpit committees don't think about even doing something like that. But yeah, and I, I write you know, about that in the book, and that's a whole other conversation, or whole yeah. other aspect of the conversation. I think they should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin, I, I was just thinking. I had an interesting experience. You know, in the major times that I moved ministry, and Tom and Steve, I, I'd be interested in your experience of this. But when I finally made the or I surrendered to leave in the same way that you surrendered to go when I finally accepted God was moving me somewhere else. There came a point where I felt a disconnect from the flock. Like God was telling me, you know, th- they are no longer your responsibility. I loved them still. I cared for them and many of them I've stayed in contact with. But there was a a distinct idea in, in my mind that I was no longer there, the under shepherd for that congregation. Does that make sense? Is that something you've experienced? Yes. And along with that comes a feeling like you're betraying them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In like you let them down. Yes. That's something Tom points out in his book that I loved is it's a real, he, he really pinpoints the fact that a church is God's, it's God's flock. And I'm not opposed to a pastor saying my church or my flock, because that doesn't always mean possession or ownership it can mean belonging it can mean i belong to that but it's responsibility it is, it is the lord's church and it doesn't fall on your shoulders Amen. and i love the distinction between it's god's church god's flock and then as a pastor we are autonomous you know priests before god just like every other believer and we've got to make decisions on where god's leading us and sometimes you know the flock doesn't revolve around us and we got to be humble enough to, to move on when the, when the great shepherd says time to move on. But I think if you're the pastor of a church, you have a responsibility to them. That's what I mean. So it's not, it's not your church. You are not meant to lord anything over them, but you have a, a, a duty of care that mm-hmm. you're going to answer to God for. And so what I mean is that there came a time when I felt this, uh, feeling that God was saying, okay, you relinquish the care of them. They, they are not, you're not answerable for them anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that yeah. sounds more harsh than I mean it. No. And in, no. in this, it's interesting that you, you guys have that experience because, and I don't want to get into the subject of su- succession just yet, but when I became the pastor at the church where I am, um, I was at that time, the youth pastor and I told my wife, I said, I can feel God moving my heart away from, from the youth yeah. ministry. Like yeah. it was so, it was so evident that I was like, wow. And it was again, that those feelings of guilt were there in the sense that I thought, oh, I don't, you know, I still have an obligation to them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be their pastor. Um, but it was just, it was just a feeling that I think mirrors what you're, what you're describing, Martin, is that when God moves a man, he moves their heart first in many cases. Uh, something I'm, kind of curious about because we are moving through this rather quickly here or well we're, we're moving through our time quickly is with with you all in your experience um what did the what did the process of candidating look like i mean you guys must have had to do interviews was it different in england than it is here in the states i'd be curious to hear your experience with all of that candidating is uh oh man there's so many landmines in that <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. can tell after after I finished talking in the long pause. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, so much of it comes down to you can't read people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think wisdom. Sometimes pastors get desperate for lots of reasons: emotional reasons, spiritual reasons, financial reasons, marriage mm-hmm. reasons, and they're just looking for an out from their current situation, and so they jump from the frying pan into the fire. Mm-hmm. I'm a proponent in next of, of taking that decision thoughtfully and carefully and not just choosing to leave where you're at, but what kind of a church to look for next and ruling in and ruling out certain things based upon what battles you want to fight and what battles you don't want to fight. When you do that, it makes the candidating process much simpler because you have boxed out so many bad situations or from what, from what your perspective are bad situations that every situation you entertain um, – you've already screened so much negativity out of it that you're 
the candidating situations are not are not so much you trying to navigate exactly what do I say to land this position, but it's about figuring out is God leading my heart to join with these people's hearts and put our necks to the wheel and serve him together. I think a lot of bad bad pulpit committee and candidating situations would be resolved if the guys looking for churches would be more intentional about what kind of churches they're looking for. I think you talk about, you know, not settling for something. You know, the pastor shouldn't just settle for a church because, like you said, he's desperate. Neither should a church settle for a pastor because they get desperate because they don't think they're going to find anyone else because ultimately that's going to lead to problems on one side or both. I liken it to a marriage, right? Candidating is a lot like dating, actually. And and you're very wise to rule in and out certain things on principle before you begin the process. Mm-hmm. Um and then in the process of dating, you need to look underneath the hood to use another metaphor. You need to not just, you know, look at how pretty the church is or how nice the building is or what the salary is. You need to poke around the innards of the church and as much as you can and let the pulpit committee poke around in you. That's their job. And I think one of the best principles to to guide both the pastor and the church looking is, you know, use that analogy of dating is you can't be needy. You can't need a church and you can't need a pastor. Because mm. a pastor, find, a church finding a pastor isn't hard. There's a lot of nutcases out there that want a pastor. <laughs> um, finding a good pastor is a different thing. And yeah, that's true. You know, and then even as a pastor, when you're talking in the candidating process, you you got to be real. You got to be honest. You you can't answer things in a way that you're you're positioning to try to get it. And I wonder what answer they want and. That would all be stupid foolishness. Now, my pastor gave me this advice, too, though, is you you realize you're going to take a church and you're going to see some weaknesses and, you know, excuse me, in your mind and in your heart, you're going to lead that church somewhere. And it's not being dishonest not to show your whole hand on where you're going to lead them because they might have a deficiency or a weakness. But don't ever be dishonest if they're asking you. And don't answer questions to try to try to get it. You can't want it. You gotta you gotta find the fit. You know, churches should find their fit. Men should find the church that fits them. And you're discovering the will of God. And if you're discovering yes. the will of God, you can't be dishonest. Yeah, you, know, you said about just, there being a lot of a lot of bad pastors out there, and that's true. Um, you know, there's a lot of good pastors out there as well. And simply being a good pastor isn't enough either. It's got to be the right man for for the job. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Tom, sorry, Tom, you said about looking around the innards of the church and, and just asking questions and looking in every corner. When I was candidating for one of the churches, I was walking around it with the existing pastor who I was you know, going to be the associate to, and we're walking through the auditorium, large historic building, and, and I said, you know, I appreciate you. We're friends. You know, We've worked together, and I'd, I'd love to work with you together again ministry, starting a Bible college and everything here. I said, but, you know, a line in the sand for me is, is the drum kit's going to have to go. And he was like, he said, what? I said, I, I can't bring my family and, and serve somewhere where there's a drum kit. That's just a red line for me. And he said, there's no drum kit. And I, you know, it was right next to us, but it was under a cloth and I lifted the cloth up and I was like, the drum kit right there. <laughs> and he was so horrified. He was like, I had no idea that that was there. He said, that's not going to be used. That's going to be good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you've got to ask questions and it's better to find out early on than, uh, stumble into something later. Yeah. I think it's also important for the church and pastor, both not to have the expectation of perfection because you will never find the perfect fit, perfect church, perfect man. Um, it is finding God's will and realizing there's always going to be a deficient church. There's always deficient men um, and, you know, getting God's mind on it. And I think churches need to understand the difference between settling for someone they shouldn't and adjusting a, to reality. I have a yeah, chapter that's good about, wisdom. in there about, about churches that haven't been able to find a pastor and much of the time it's because they've set the bar so high, you know, they, they I don't want to be rude, but there's 20 people in the middle of a cornfield and they want a doctorate, you know, they want yeah. to go with a doctorate. It's just not realistic. Mm. Um, yeah. So as we go through the process of all that, you know, you guys have all had to <clears throat> depart from ministries. Um, 
<laughs> what what was the resignation process like for you? What was the you know what what was that like when you were stepping away? Did they allow you to help them? I know of a pastor. He he resigned and he said, you know, I'll stay through this time, help you guys form a pulpit committee, help this and that. And they literally told him, no, we're good. We'll see you. You know, you, you're you're done this week. If you're resigning, you're done. And so I know that churches can respond poorly when a pastor shocks them, for lack of a better term, with a resignation. Um, but really, I really feel like if a pastor is the pastor of that church, especially if he's been there a respectable number of years, he ought to have a role in preparing for the next guy as well. What, what What's your experience with that? I, I agree with you about that, but I do think you don't have to wait until you resign to figure that out. Uh-huh. Good pastoring looks down the road right? In lots of different areas and sees what's right. coming. Well, every one of us is an interim pastor. I mean, we all understand that someone else is, if the Lord Terry is coming, someone else is going to stand in that pulpit. So the church is going to have to make that decision. Why would I wait until I resign to try to help them understand that that is going to come and to help guide them through it? Years before I resigned in Chicago, I sat down with my deacons and I worked through like a 15, 17 page, you know, outline of here, do this and don't do this and do this and don't do this. So when I resigned, the next conversation, I mean, the, before I resigned, I resigned on a Sunday morning, but I met with the deacons on Saturday so that they knew it was coming ahead of time. And I write about why I, do, why I did that and next. But, you know, when I sat down with them, I was like, okay, fellows, I know this is a shock to you, but there is a plan here. We've talked about it already. And so that plan was me helping to guide them in the transition and then also because our relationship was a very good relationship, they asked for additional help from me in specific areas. And I was I was honored by that. I think it helped them. I think it helped that church. What I didn't want to do, didn't want to, uh, the line I didn't want to cross was choosing their next pastor because that was their right. church. But I think a pastor could be should be proactive and teach his church about how to do this process before he resigns when things are going well. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, and that's the thing. Most churches don't have a plan. You said you have a 15-page plan? Uh, it, it's in next. I, it's in there. I put it in. Oh, my goodness. Wow. that's that's Every church needs that. Yeah. Are you saying that because you're saying I should have read the entire book before we did this podcast and you're just kind of, you know, I plead getting the on fifth. me a little bit? You plead the, fifth. <laughs> plead the fifth. Okay. Gotcha. But no, that's that's true. I mean, there, so the resignation is going to be a shock. If you tell people, hey, we're leaving... And like I said, you've been there a respectable amount of time. Well, hearts are hearts are tied together. Um, now, so that's that's something to anticipate. Let me ask you this, and this could be for any three of you. What are the realities of leaving a church? What are the things that this is what you have to anticipate for your own, maybe in your own emotions, your family? Um, you know, God could be moving you into his perfect will, and there's still going to be some hurt that goes along with that. Am I right? In the last chapter of the book, um, cause I, I did read all of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't even subtle. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The last, in the last chapter, Tom literally makes the, the comment. Um, he says, you know, you will bleed, you know, you could be leaving the greatest situation for the best reasons, moving into another amazing situation, but it's still going to hurt. Um, my family's last Sunday at Brinton Baptist Church, mm. um, the uh, four of the girls who are my daughter's best friends had um, prepared a special, and it was the hymn, uh, God be with you till we meet again. And as they were singing it, they were crying. I'm sat on the front row feeling like the worst person in the world. The whole church was crying. <laughs> and... Um, Recently, the song leader here at Bedford chose it, and my youngest daughter jumped up and ran to me and just like held me and buried her face in my. In my and <laughs> so it's going to hurt, you know, and, and that's a reality you've got to expect. Yeah, yeah, that that's the thing is like there there will be there has to be hurt with that. What do you, what do you do to help your family through the pain of leaving? You know, you know it's God's will. You your wife knows it's God's will. Um, but you've got kids there. They've got friends there. What 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 can you do to mitigate? I think in it dep a lot of that depends on their age. Um, in, okay. in my case, when I left the pastorate in Pennsylvania, my children were too little to understand anything. When I made the decision to leave the pastorate in Chicago, I told my oldest, um, 
ahead of time that I was looking. Um, I felt that I owed him that. Um, mm-hmm. He was a teenager. Um, that helped him to prepare mentally for that. We've talked about that. So I think in some cases it's appropriate to tell them ahead of time. In some cases it's not. But I think if if when you make that decision to go, if the church you you when 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 you look at deciding where to go next, your family has to be first in your mind. Mm-hmm. So they have to not just know that, but feel that that your choice is not based upon you; it's based upon them. Mm. So I turned down opportunities and I let them know that because even though it was an opportunity, I thought it was a bad fit for them. And I tried really hard to find a situation that fit all five members of my family. When I came to Dubuque, I felt for a variety of reasons it fit each one of the five of us. And I think when they know you put them first, that helps them. The other thing I would say is after you move, you need to prioritize in your schedule. Your mind will scream. You need to spend time with your new church, but you need to prioritize your family in your schedule and your focus and mm-hmm. give them even more time than you normally would. Do you recommend, and this could be for any three of you, do you recommend planning, say, say that you're going from one church into another and you've candidated, you've been accepted or whatever. Do you recommend in, in between the time of leaving the one and going to the other planning, maybe a miniature sabbatical? Is that an appropriate thing to do? Uh, ideally, um, I don't know very many guys that do, but I, every guy I know that did, that didn't wishes he could have. Okay. Do you think, do you think it's something you just have to do? I mean, looking back, okay. So hindsight, is that something that you just say, well, it may not be ideal for, for the church that we not come this week, but it's ideal for my family. So therefore we'll be there in six weeks. I I would commend a a man for that. Okay. I feel like I'm doing too much talking here. So Tell me if I am. Edit me out. Oh, but, you're, you're not at all. Um, the, the Lord, I think the Lord really gave me a sabbatical, whether I wanted it or not. And in <laughs> hindsight, I think I was, I was burned out. I was not in a good place. And I, I loved Brimson. I loved being there. But just a combination of circumstances had led me to, to just being done. I mean, Tom mentions that in his book. And when I read that paragraph, I'm like, that was me. I mean, I was just yep. over it. Yep. And so... I moved here to the States a month, well, several months after my family. My family, you know, my wife was done. Again, she loved Brimson. She loved England, but circumstances were tough. So they moved here in March of 2018. My visa and everything didn't clear until June of 2018. Um, and that was a tough period. Um, I resigned as pastor finally on in, in April of the year. So I had a couple of months out of that. But when I got here, within a month, I had a job. I was offered a job at Chick-fil-A, uh, but I didn't take it. Um, and then for 10 months, you know, I just really worked a normal job. I listened to podcasts. I listened to the Bible as I drove. And God gave me opportunity to be refreshed. And so those 10 months, I think, were a sabbatical. And I think if it weren't for those 10 months, I wouldn't have been able to do what came next. Mm. So. We've spent a lot of time talking in this conversation about, you know, how a pastor functions and deciding to leave and go and those sorts of things. But in some situations, you're not actually going anywhere. You're staying in the Mm -hmm. same place. You're just going from an assistant position to the quote unquote senior pastor position. So uh, that's not something I've done personally. I do write about it in next. um, I did some research on it, but I think, Brother Rush, you know, this is something that you have direct experience with. Could you give us some wisdom that would help our listeners on that area? Um, yeah, well, so just to start off by saying this, that transitions, successions, either one, we have to be honest, they they are a bit of a minefield um, in, in every case. I personally think that a succession, depending on how it's set up, can be um, more so a minefield because there are a lot of things to consider there. So I took, I was a youth pastor for our church. I grew up at our church, went away, went away to Bible college, found a wife, married a wife, praise God, came back. Um, she had to finish a semester. So we stayed through the end of 2010. I graduated in May and we jumped right in, in, in um, January of 2011, working with youth, working as an assistant pastor. And those were some really good days. Those were three years of of just some great memories, some things that God allowed us to see. And God really allowed me to cut my teeth in a lot of areas during those three years. At the end of that time, my grandfather 
who was pastoring our church, pastored for 42 years. Um, he called us in and I'll never forget. It was me, my dad. It was um, Pastor Arby Willette. We have him speak for us every year. It's just someone we've always had in. And we mentioned him earlier. Uh, he was pastor at Bridgeport, Michigan at the time. And he, he called us and he said, okay, um, you know, it's August of 2013. He said, so um, I'm going to retire. And we all went, oh, okay. And he said, and I think Stephen's the next guy. And uh, God had worked in our hearts as a family through that. You know, there, I won't get into all of that, but I think, I think God was doing that. But he just dropped it. I mean, that, that's that's my grandfather's. Okay, here's my idea. Boom. And he said, so in March, I rem- I'll never forget it because he he gave specific timeline. He did all those things. He said, it's August. And in March, uh, I'm going to resign. I'm going to retire. And we all just kind of looked in shock. And Brother Willette said, wow. You know, <laughs> that, was his, that was his only response. He said, so what are you going to do about that? And he gave us some great pointers. For everybody's information, he, he retired or resigned his church after... I think it was 43 years, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm wrong on that number. Um, his pastor, Brother Howell, is a friend of mine. He's a great guy. He borrowed Roy Thompson's model. Roy Thompson transitioned yeah. his church to Kevin Folger, yeah. where you have a guy, you bring him in, and maybe he's been there long term. I believe that was the case with Brother Folger. And you progressively involve the church over the course of about five years, three to five years. And during that time, it, it hypothetically, it could look like this. You know, you, you hire someone and you say, I really think this could be the next guy. And you communicate that to your church. After about two or three years, you have a conversation with your deacons, your church, whatever. And you say, you know, I really like to promote this man to being the co-pastor. And when we vote on him to be the co-pastor, we're basically voting at this time. And you line it out to where um, he becomes the co-pastor. And then at a set date, he will be considered for the pastor upon the retirement of the senior pastor at the time. And so you let people know this is coming, but you stretch it out over two or three years. Now, here was our problem. We only had two or three months. We had from August to March. And so about six months, I guess you could say. And he said, well, you've got to borrow from that model. And what that means is, is you go around and you start talking to people individually one-on-one and you use the principle of progressive involvement there and he says, so pastor, go ahead. Did the church see you already? I mean, was there already talk in the sense of you're the next man? Because obviously when a, when a pastor gets older, there's always a question, yeah. who's the next man? They didn't see you that way? or you? I don't think so. Uh, that's my honest answer. I don't think so because what happened with that <laughs> is my grandfather, he said, brother, you know, Pastor Gail Russ, I would recommend you start talking to people now and, and, and getting them ready for this. So about four or five weeks later, I go to my grandfather and I said, um, how's it going? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, how's, how are the conversations going? You know, he goes, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I said, well, you know, what, what we talked about doing, he goes, oh no, I haven't done any of that. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, I told him I was going to say this. So, so it's not, it's not going to shock him. But he laughed. We laughed about it the other day because I told him we were recording on this topic. And he said, did I do that? I said, oh, yeah, you did that. I said, well, um, then can I have some conversations? He said, absolutely. Knock yourself out. You know, (laughs) and so I I talked to um, a couple of men who were very, very close and loyal to my grandfather, but also very much loved me. These were not adversaries. These were just that that was the case. And both of those men raised their eyebrows and went, whoa. And their answer, both of them, and they both still attend our church and are just absolute pillars in our church. They both looked at me and said, you're very young. I was oh, 25. That's not, that's not encouraging. <laughs> no, but it, was, it wasn't unexpected. Okay, so they looked at me and they said, you're very young. I said, I know. That was my answer. I said, I know. That's it. I can't defend that. I can't change that. There's, there's one thing about me I can't change, and that's my age, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, I understand. And I said, I can understand your reaction. But this is what my grandfather is considering. And I just, I just want to know before we go forward if this is something you would even support. And that was what I did with a number of other people in, in the church. And I didn't have to talk to everybody in the church. It began to spread. And by the time we came to February... I actually, <laughs> this is not conventional. I actually outlined how I wanted the transition to go. My grandfather wanted to retire. And I said, okay, but not on, not on anniversary Sunday for Sunday in March. I said, I will not take the church on your anniversary. It's not going to happen. Um, there were a few things that needed to happen beforehand. I was able to see that happen and the Lord did it. So bottom line, it wasn't ideal in a lot of ways, but it's what God wanted and it worked. 
And I tell people there were things about our situation that were not conventional. They were not standard. They were not something that you put in your book, Tom. But I think I learned maybe some things that could be put in a book uh, through that whole process. All that to say is pastoral succession requires patience, um, of which I had very little at the time, and God used that to build in me. It requires humility, of which I had very little at the time, but God demanded it of me immediately. And it requires this one little piece of advice that I will say to those who might be listening that really frustrated me at first. I had a missionary at the time I was talking to him. I was frustrated early on. And he said, um, uh, Stephen, your vision for this, this church, you are going to have to put it on hold. And that offended me. And I recognized immediately it was true. There was a congregational vote. I got the vote. I became the pastor. And it took seven years. It took five years, really. But it took seven years totally for it to become my church. Which is, and which so, is about, uh, yeah. it's about, what it, about what it should be. I thought at four years, I thought, okay, <laughs> you know, this is, th- this is time. I can, I can push the gas pedal. And I got my wrist slapped so hard, figuratively speaking. And I talked to Kevin Folger about that. And I said, hey, so at what point did you feel like you had the liberty to really exercise pastoral authority? And I said, I'm at year four. He goes, yeah, it's a little soon. <laughs> that, was, that was his response. I went, okay, all right, just needed to know. But it's unique. And I, I'd be happy to talk to anyone going through it because I have talked to a lot of guys who have come into situations with an older pastor who they say, hey, come in and in a year, you'll, you'll be the pastor. And guess what happens? That older pastor gets a second wind. Hmm. Oftentimes, Almost every time. Become, oftentimes those become difficult situations. Yep. And I'll tell you, Brother Russ, I think that'd be awesome if young guys reached out to you and talked to you. I think you should give young guy lessons because you know, <laughs> I, I, I've i become kind of that cranky old preacher that doesn't want to hear from the young guys. I'm, I'm actually really not, but I love your heart. You have wisdom <laughs> beyond your years. And... Um, I, I just thank God for your spirit as a young man that that, you know, has a head on his shoulders. And that's evidence through the way you did the transition, your patience in doing that. Yeah. And I, well, I appreciate that. And I would just say this because I know we have to move on and we're almost done here. But I would just say that with with everything that Tom wrote, it's so well written in the sense that it teaches a pastor who's looking for a church to structure his search based on some of his needs and Nothing's going to be perfect. Nothing's going to be exactly what you want, but you can get it in the ballpark. But when you do a succession, I think young guys have got to understand that there are going to be a lot of things that may not go their way, and it may still be God's will that they be there. And so they have to be patient, and they have to let God shape them and sharpen them through that. While we're talking about young guys, I mean, I'm I'm honestly not – trying to bump up sales for Tom or anything like that. But I think this is a seriously good resource that every Bible student in colleges and everything should make use of because there are books out there f- for different situations. But as far as independent fundamental Baptist churches, um, I really don't think there's anything that comes close to this. Yeah. I mean, graduation presents. I mean, just get it out to the kid, you know, these young guys because they need it. Yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. I, I agree because there's, there's a lot in this and we need, we need to, uh, Tom, maybe have you give the information again of how to, how to get this book. Um, uh, the title is next a manual on a manual for pastoral transitions. Uh, it's on Amazon. So most people buy books, it's in print uh, as a paperback or it's on Kindle. Um, you can get it at Barnes and Noble in print or on the nook. Uh, you can get it on iTunes, um, which is a digital uh, version of it. Yeah. All three of those just, if you just Google my name, Tom Brennan, and next you'll find it on any of those sites. And there's stuff in this book that absolutely we, we didn't even get to. I mean, right? And we try to la- we try to land within a time frame. What are some things in that book that we haven't even scratched the surface oh, of, brother Tom? Yeah, committees. We have Yeah, we haven't talked about pulpit committee stuff, and I have several chapters in there about how to help a pulpit committee function. Um, there's a lot in there about how a pastor should lead his church following his resignation to help shepherd them and prepare for the next pastor well. There's stuff in there about how a church should prepare for the arrival of its new pastor. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's stuff in there for lots of things like that. I yeah. know we're wrapping up here, but I, I want to give a shout out to the pulpit committee that brought me here to Bedford Bible <laughs> Church. I mean, they made an incredible choice, but in all seriousness, 
Um, <laughs> they were professional. They were courteous. Uh, they, they did an incredible job. And I know they had some counsel and that helped them. But, uh, you know, they they steered things really well. And, and that that transition, I think, helped them, the church, me and my family. When it's done well, it's an incredible thing. And the men here Amen. did a great job. Amen. Pastor, well, we, the, go ahead. the church is the bride of Christ. And, and it's not my bride, but it's the bride of Christ, which means it's a bride. And a lot mm-hmm. of the way that you deal as a husband to a wife mm-hmm. is the relationship between a pastor and a church. And when it is done right, when it's entered into right, when it's done right, it is such a sweet, sweet, holy thing. Powerful. Very good. Tom, you obviously have written a book about this. You've got experience in this. Um, would you mind closing out our podcast today with a letter? Dear Church, curiously enough, as the author of the book under discussion in the podcast today, I want to use another man's words to end this episode with. Brother Craig Bircham is a professor at Golden State Baptist College, and I ask him to write the foreword for next. These are his words. Life is a series of transitions, from child to teen to adult, from newlywed to parent to grandparent, from apprentice to laborer to retirement. In these scenarios, knowing the inevitability of change, we make preparation. The ministry should be no different. Should the return of Christ tarry, every church will ultimately have a different pastor than the one who now leads the flock. Some of those changes will occur because of calling, some because of health, some because of death, and others will change because of sin. Regardless of the cause behind the change, every church and pastor should prepare for that day. Next, a manual for pastoral transitions is an invaluable resource for making those preparations. Written by a man who has experienced such transitions as a child in the home of a pastor, as well as being in the position of a pastor himself, this book is filled with practical and helpful insights for navigating the troubling waters of change. With chapters for the departing pastor, the pastoral candidate, the successor-in-waiting, and the pulpit committee, this book helps provide a roadmap through every facet of transition. While you may not agree with every opinion expressed by the author, there is more than enough practical advice to make this book an essential part of every preacher's library and a valuable tool for every deacon board and pulpit committee. I appreciate Brother Bircham's kind words there, but please know our heart in this discussion has just been to edify God's people. We have no desire to set ourselves up as some kind of experts. We just want to help churches and help people. And that's our heart. Respectfully, Stephen Brudnick, Tom Brennan, Martin Wickens, and Stephen Russell.